0: Welcome back. On today's show, I talk with Rick Hodges, executive in residence at the College of Health Sciences and Professions at Ohio University, and among other things, former director of the Ohio Department of Health. I wanted to talk with Rick not only because he has an important perspective on what it's like to head up the Department of Health, but also because he was state director at a time from 2014 to 2017 when Ohio was dealing with the specter of an Ebola outbreak, so he understands the challenges of leading that office during a time of public health emergency. Rick and I talk about that, but also the state's response to COVID-19, the often annoying political climate in which that response is taking place, and the broader politics of public health. This is Prognosis Ohio, a WCBE podcast. I'm Dan Skinner. As always, before turning to my conversation with Rick, I'd like to remind you to share your ideas for show themes and interviews by emailing us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Also, check out our website at prognosisohio.com. While you're there, please consider becoming a patron for the show for just $3 a month, which, if you commit to six months or more, gets you a spiffy Prognosis Ohio t-shirt as a token of our thanks. We hope you can appreciate our decision to using Patreon instead of jamming lots of boring commercials into the episodes. I also want to give you a heads up that for reasons I won't bore you with, the audio quality on this episode isn't that great. During COVID especially, we've been using Zencaster, which is an online podcast recording platform. But there are so many variables to getting a decent recording quality out of it, and as much as one tries, sometimes it just doesn't work. I mention this not only to give you a heads up and to apologize a bit for not hitting the mark, especially to Rick, but also to let you know that getting some consistency with the audio quality is going to be a real priority for us moving forward. It's one thing that support through Patreon will help with directly. And with that, I note that you can support the show by visiting patreon.com prognosisohio to chip in just $3 a month and become a patron for the show. That's patreon.com prognosisohio. And thanks. Rick Hodges is currently executive in residence at Ohio University in the College of Health Sciences and Professions, where he's responsible for population health program design, implementation, and outreach. Prior to joining OU, in 2014, Hodges was appointed by Governor Kasich to serve as the Director of the Ohio Department of Health. In that capacity, he worked on public health system redesign, as well as disease surveillance and response, chronic disease programs, and a range of regulatory responsibilities in medical service provision. His voluminous professional history includes work in healthcare administration, including a range of management roles in Northwest Ohio, and serving as the Executive Director for the Ohio Turnpike Commission. Hodges also served as a state representative in the Ohio legislature from 1993 to 1999, during which time he served on several committees, including the Health and Retirement Committee, which regularly dealt with healthcare issues impacting everyday Ohioans. Hey, Rick, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Dan.
0: I've been thinking about having you on for quite a while and uh, just, you know, waiting for the right moment. Uh, obviously, with covid yeah, you know, there, there never seems to be a right moment. It's just this like long stretch. <laughs> so, I figured, you know, I I saw you on Facebook, uh, a post or two, um, kind of parsing out for some people in your orbit how you think about the governor's response and the kind of way things have been for, gosh, almost now nine months or more than nine months of active COVID life. I guess, you know, to get things rolling, I'll just say that, you know, my view has pretty consistently been that I think Governor DeWine gets pretty high marks for his leadership uh, and, you know, his work with Director Acton back in, in um, April and May. But the political climate has become consistently more difficult. So I would like to be able to say, hey, Governor DeWine, just stand tall, you know, <laughs> but that's easy for me to say you know, and he's operating in this really tricky political climate. So I wondered if I could just get your kind of big take view on how all of this has gone, you know, especially the early <laughs> to the wherever we are right now kind of trajectory.
1: Well, I, I think in Ohio, as far as, as leadership is concerned, it's it's gone as well as we could reasonably have hoped. I don't think anybody knew in the beginning, this would be a marathon. Uh, you know, we were talking about getting things under control by summer. And so I, I thought you were going to say we're going to be in church by Easter, which is what president <laughs> said. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and he was on the golf course that day, but uh, whatever. Um I, I think governor Dwine's leadership has been great. The the problem is it's not just in Ohio. We can't close the borders and a lot of the national response has not been very good. It's prolonged the problems here. And when you you go from a sprint to a marathon, you've got to totally rethink your approach to how you want to respond to the the, uh, um, virus. Yeah, COVID fatigue, as they say, is is not just in terms of mask
0: compliance and social distancing, but just it it, it also has policy consequences and, and it has really shaped the political dynamic in the state as well.
1: Yeah, it, yes, it has. And, um, you know, we've never been through this before. And, and in retrospect, you know, you can say, well, somebody should have anticipated this. I don't know if that's fair or not. But um, at first, I know I was um, director of health when, um, well, when we had an Ebola case. Mm-hmm. And that certainly, um, that only lasted a couple of weeks. This has gone on for nine months. So it's, it's a very different situation in that way. Uh, but for that first couple of weeks, it was just as intense. And you know you're buried down in in the bunker at the emergency operations center. You never see the sunshine. At first, everything is chaos because although you do have plans and infrastructure in place, every outbreak, every emergency response is different, and you have to totally retool your organization and and uh, build up your your infrastructure and your resources in real time. And it's it's very demanding. Uh, yeah. and so. But once that happens, uh, um, the, the people who are managing this response um, do not get nearly enough credit because there's a some health uh, emergency health response going on every single day during normal times, and they're very good at it. Now they've never had to respond to something this big, but this is not their first rodeo. They're uh, they're trained professionals, and, and we need to give them credit for knowing what they're doing.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking a little bit about you know before talking to you. You know, you were health director at a very different time. The Ebola thing—it was memorable, and I remember there was a lot of fear about where this was going to go. There was a lot of moving around of resources, like some of the things we've seen through COVID. But as you mentioned, we're now in the ninth month, uh, so you know the, the, that 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 poses challenges of their own. But I've also noticed, you know. Most people, I'm guessing, have no idea what the Ohio Department of Health does, right? I mean, the average person. Sure. But we've really learned a lot. I mean, I, there there was also this moment of you know Director Acton being on the stage every day. I mean, we saw this in New York. We saw this in a few states where these people became well-known uh, TV personalities, almost. Um, not something a, a state health director really ever wants. I'm guessing. No, you. That's not a good sign. <laughs> But how do you think, you know, we have this kind of pushback also of, wow, public health has a lot of power potentially, or, you know, this kind of uh, response that we had, um, public health, not just as this thing to say, thank you for taking care of us, but freedom, liberty, um, this kind of uh, backlash. So w- w-
1: what do you think we're learning right now about that? Well, and, and you know, for a health historian like myself, it's very interesting. I know during Ebola, uh, i I, as the director, had the power to close things and, and quarantine people um, by force if necessary. That that uh, power is there, and we had the documents all drawn up to exercise it, but we never did. And nobody ever had in anybody's experience or in anybody's knowledge. So a lot of these powers have never been used before and they're totally new to uh, Ohioans and Americans and so in the exercise of that authority there's no precedent to rely on and so of course there's there's um pushback and the the early politicization of of this of the disease just made it that much more difficult wading into uncharted territory with a built-in interest group that wasn't going to be satisfied with any kind of, uh, extraordinary powers.
0: Yeah. You know, in public health generally, I mean, there's always this tendency from critics and I've found myself saying this from time to time too, you know, thinking more in terms of mandates or, um, just a more stringent approach, but you know, what we really need is leadership. We really need to persuade people to, uh, take this stuff seriously, And it turns out that most people do want to take it seriously in some level. There's just this kind of negotiation, this push and pull that goes on. So yeah, while you might have those formal powers, you don't really want to make that your first go-to. And I I mean, have we gone into any of that territory at all compared to when you think about the Ebola situation, has the governor tapped into kind of unprecedented authority that maybe most people wouldn't even know existed?
1: Yes, I, th- I think so. During the during the Ebola situation, uh, the one advantage I had was that people were scared to death, and when we called them and asked them to the quarantine, they said, "Oh, yes, please let me do that." Uh, there was absolutely no pushback. The business people involved were uh, more than uh, willing to help us out, and and schools in the area or communities basically went into a lockdown on their own that was appropriate for the situation. And in that case, all we knew about Ebola was that you get it, you, you die, and you give it to somebody else. Um, so that was a different situation. In, in this case, um, you know, where the survival rate is, is really quite high, a lot of people were willing to, to say, no, uh, we're not going to do that. And the governor, I don't recall a time when the governor exercised authority to to shut down businesses and uh, to impose curfews on businesses and and even personal behavior. Uh, I don't know that's ever been done before. So um, it's all new. And and the law, I don't think, has really been uh, litigated. Um, So it will be over time. And if Governor DeWine has been found to be in violation of it. Uh, most of us will say, thank you. <laughs> A few of us will say, I told you so. Uh, but uh, we'll definitely know what the limits of the, that authority is going to be.
0: You know, my reading, as many people have been reading during the pandemic uh, of the 1918 flu uh, pandemic, uh, you know, in Ohio, there, there were major shutdowns kind of, that's the closest equivalent I can come up with historically, where in this state we have done that. And it's interesting because you read these histories, you know, for example, we think about President Trump, and we'll turn to that in a moment. But in the 1918 pandemic, Woodrow Wilson was kind of famously absent. He was focused on the tail end of the war. He was sick himself. But when you read the histories, it's really the Public health folks—it's the public health directors who are the kind of heroes and also the villains of the way that yes. the history is written there, which is interesting. People don't, you know, we don't, we don't, we tend to focus on you know the high-level stuff, but then you, as you noted, the people who do the day-to-day work, who work in the you know Department of Medicaid or the Ohio Department of Health—I mean, those are the people that don't get the the credit they deserve.
1: No, it, it, and the, you know these people have got to be exhausted because I know what the. The routine here is and the protocol is, and it's, it's, it's extraordinarily tense. It's by far the most intense experience I've ever had in my life. And after two weeks of that, I was exhausted. And to think that they're, they're doing it now for nine months, and I'm sure they've found ways to pace themselves and get back and get into a sense of routine, but they've got to be exhausted, and I'm just uh, so proud of, of the fact that they, they did this really good work During a time when there was no Latin national leadership and there was some, you know, a significant amount of resistance to what they were trying to do.
0: So when people talk about Director Acton, when she stepped down, um, you know, there were some folks who were saying, oh, no, don't leave us, don't leave us. And my my response was, let her take a break. (laughs) It's hard (laughs) work. But, I mean, when you reflect on that. How did you process that moment of sort of leadership change in in the midst of that? There was a lot of speculation, right? There was stuff about protesting around her house. There was, I even saw somebody float the idea that she was going to run against Senator Portman at some point. I mean, just <laughs> complete nonsense that people were throwing out there. But how did you think about that moment of, of changing directors? And then, of course, we had some trouble getting a new director
1: in place yes. for a bit there as well. Well, you know, I, I've worked throughout state government as an elected official, as a as a um, administrator, as a as a cabinet director. I'm I'm pretty comfortable with about every area of state government, and I was shocked at how political the Ohio Department of Health truly is. Um, whether it's uh, in my case, same sex marriage, or the abortion issue, or any kind of reproductive health issues. The uh, uh, inspections of nursing homes and hospitals, everything gets politicized, and she had been living in that environment for over a year before COVID even arrived. I think the average life expectancy of a a state director of the Department of Health nationwide is about two and a half years, and that's during normal times. It it truly is a, I think the the most politically charged agency in, in state government. And so, for for anybody—not just Amy, but anybody—to go through that for a year, and then run into COVID, uh, which is it just demands everything that you have. Uh, I, I think uh, you know she. We need to thank her, uh, congratulate her on really doing a, a great job, and, and understand that uh, there are limits to what people can do.
0: Yeah. Now that's a really balanced way of thinking about it, and I think that the important thing is. Uh, you know, to think about these people as people, um, you know, and in politics, we, you know, sometimes rightly don't want to do that because they do have responsibilities and they need to be held accountable at the same time uh, when they do their job and they need to go. Yeah. <laughs> you understand. <laughs> so, you know, my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you generally identify as a Republican. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> but you've, you know, you've been critical of the responses you've already sort of intimated uh, from the Trump administration and the federal government generally. Um, So, and and a lot of that's because, you know, when the federal government is absent, um, the state gets hammered and states don't have as many tools uh, in the toolbox. So how do you process the dynamic between the situation the state was in, is in, and the federal government? And how should that have gone down? Is there a better way or is it, you know, something else?
1: Well, you know, it, it, public health is typically a local response, and our local health departments are very capable of managing most day-to-day uh, events that, that may can't come up. On occasions where you have, um, and it was actually a daily experience uh, of Department of Health, but we have 88 counties, so, uh, you know, during the occasions when... Uh, Uh, you have like a a flu outbreak or something that is just too big for the locals to to manage an AIDS outbreak or something like that, then it becomes a regional and a state response. Rarely is the federal government involved at all, except in a case like Ebola or um, COVID, where the demands completely overwhelm the ability of the state to respond. Prior to Ebola, the um, state of Ohio did not have funding for emergency response. Everything came um, from regular grants to the federal government. And it was a big victory for me that I think we got a couple million dollars in the budget so that we could actually respond on our own um, to local problems. But when you get something this big, the, uh, the CDC uh, and the president have got to become involved just on simple things like... Um, Um, uh, personal protective equipment. There's not enough supply out there. And I can assure you that I was out there clawing tooth and nail to get PPE for Ohio during Ebola and got really annoyed with the federal government because they made it basically impossible for me to get PPE. They grabbed it all and started rationing it out based on need. That didn't happen this time. Uh, States were competing with each other and driving up the cost of of PPE and making it very difficult for the resources to go to the right place. We relied heavily on the CDC for guidance on how to respond, not only to Ebola but in many other areas where we had to respond. There was no, we you, you couldn't be confident in the federal government's guidance uh, this time. The um, the uh, testing supplies, same thing. You know, the, the basically the president said, well, states are, are on their own. Well, states can't be on their own. Um, we compete with each other. We slow down the supply chain and we drive up the price because every single one of us wants to make sure we take care of uh, our citizens and, and our citizens first. So that support and that access to resources has never been there. And of course, the um, you know on a, on a broad leadership level, uh, the president has denied the severity of it although he claimed to be aware of it early on, Uh, they've actually been giving bad advice, conflicting advice, uh, science or uh, advice that's based on voodoo and not science. And so not only did that make it extraordinarily difficult for the states, but it just built up the resistance. You know, in reality, all along, all we've been talking about is wearing some cloth over your, your mouth, and uh, stand six feet away from each other. Right. Something I try to do in normal times. To exactly. Be <laughs> exactly. What's the problem here?
0: <laughs> when you think about the ideal federal response and what's the right approach. What's the right balance?
1: What would you have liked to have seen the federal government do? Well, you know, and this is not a partisan comment because I'm I'm a Republican, but uh, I thought the Obama administration did an excellent job in responding to the Ebola crisis. They took charge of the resources. They were very um, responsive in allocating them where the where there was a need. They um, gave us very clear guidance, and even um, I remember. Uh, when Ebola was, um, when we had the case come to Ohio. And again, back then, all we knew about Ebola was everybody dies. Um, not not a great place to begin from either. No, really- <laughs> fortunately, that's not true, but that's what everybody believed to be the truth. Right. Um, the initial response is chaos until everybody settles into their roles. And the governor says, we'll get a CDC team up here. And I said, okay, how do I do that? Um, but when you worked for Governor Casey, you figured it out. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, the governor made a jet available, and we had a CDC team up here, I think, in like three or four hours, mm-hmm. uh, helping us with our response. And you know that was the kind of teamwork where the, the federal government had created the infrastructure and the state's we didn't do everything exactly the way the CDC said, because there were some, in some ways, Ohio, every state's unique. But we had that that support system there that we could access as we needed it, when we needed it.
0: But but of course, Ebola is also something we know a bit about, right? We've been, we, I mean, it's, it's still extremely dangerous and, and all of that, but this wasn't our first time encountering it. And I think we actually watched... Governor DeWine, um, you know uh, Anthony Fauci. I mean, all these folks were kind of learning in real time, and oftentimes, like on TV, you know, which is a really crazy environment to be uh, in.
1: Right, and, and there were, you know, even even during the Ebola situation, uh, we didn't realize that as long as you pe- keep people hydrated um, in a big way and give them uh, palliative care, there's a good chance they're going to make it through. Yeah. It's a horrible experience, but there is a good chance you are going to make it through. We didn't know at the time that the PPE that we, the standard PPE, was not sufficient for Ebola. Uh, we had to learn those things, and we relied on the the CDC to to learn those things for us and to tell us the truth. And they were very, very quick about it. Probably between uh, understanding the palliative care aspect and changing our PPE, that probably prevented a a much bigger problem. So, you know, here in, in the case of COVID, sure, um, Anthony, Dr. Fauci said that uh, masks weren't effective. That was only for a few weeks. And that was only until new information became apparent. And we quickly changed our strategy. You know, and we do have experience with SARS-related illnesses. Um, we um, acted as if this was typical uh, a typical SARS-related illness, but um, found out there are a few nuances. And then they pivoted. At least Dr. Fauci pivoted quickly, but the rest of the government uh, didn't really follow suit.
0: Yeah. And there's also this interesting dynamic where people, and you know, President-elect Biden has said this now, and of course he's put in place a, as his chief of staff, the person who ran much of the Ebola response, right? So yes. th- there are a number of interesting pieces here, but you know, just trusting in scientists is one thing, but our our so our kind of public li- uh, literacy around these issues is interesting right we we think that the science is either a thing that's there or not but science evolves and, and 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 you just watch the difficulty of the political world calibrating itself to evolving science I- as well and that's super frustrating because you want to say look they weren't lying to us about masks they are Man. also like figuring this out a little bit here too and and the move to bad faith is so fast
1: yes right now. Yes, and that's that's a cultural problem that we uh, somehow need to deal with it. You know, I, I used to call it the uh, the Oprah Winfrey syndrome or the 60 Minutes syndrome where where somebody said, you know, I saw a program on brain surgery on, on 60 Minutes last night, uh, therefore I'm a brain surgeon, or I saw this program on, on Oprah. Um, I, I could just predict for you, uh, I would watch 60 Minutes, and I could predict you for you the bills that would be introduced the next week um, based on the fact that somebody watched sixty minutes, so we have access to all this information, and we don't use that to make informed choices. By and large, we use that to reinforce our prejudices, and as soon as, frequently, uh, and as soon as somebody comes up with a different approach, it's it's automatically suspect.
0: Yeah. And I can tell you as a political scientist who has done some work with you know, media studies, I mean, we know pretty well, pretty conclusively that people do not watch the cable television stations, for example, or even just the news outlets they, they choose. They don't always watch them to learn things. They learn that, they watch them to have their biases confirmed, to feel comfortable, to feel like these are my people. You know? yes.
1: So that's frightening. The world is the way I think it is. <laughs> so it's safe. Yeah. I, I uh, I, I agree, and it, um, I think that's a national conversation we have. I don't know how we have it or if people can even enter it at this point in good faith. But uh, just the fact that a fact is no longer a fact is a, a problem. And, and, you know, uh, uh, we talk about science and following science, and, and I certainly believe in that. But one thing that President Trump did say at one point that I— I kind of agreed with him on and uh, he thought it was humorous was he said if you let the scientists take over they'll shut down the world um that's true <laughs> so uh, you know, what do you mean by that though okay tell, tell me well usually when you see a health issue uh the immediate response of, of the sciences scientists is we've got to shut that lake down or that river down or that that event down or that whole community down to re- prevent this from um spreading and it's like, I can't do that. You know, um, there are lakes in Ohio that where you shouldn't swim, and, but I can't shut them down because, first of all, I don't have the power to enforce it. But second, it's, it will destroy the economy of the community mm-hmm. um, if we do that. You know, I, that once there were high nitrates in the water uh, in the river here in Columbus, and there were water advisories, and I was told we needed to shut down red, white, and boom. Well, we're not going to do that. We're just going to tell people don't drink the water, um, and things like that. So, there, there is an initiative from a policymaker from point of view or a public leader point of view. You know, you you, you can't follow it blindly. People have to survive and, and live, but you've got to take the science and say this is going to be um, the roadmap that we follow, even though yeah. we may not take the, exactly the same routes. We always have to defer to the science.
0: The problem with that metaphor, though, is also then you need people to not drink the water. You know, I mean, and that's yeah. the problem we have, which is when you see massive you know, non compliance, you know, and you're trying to keep the schools open, you're trying to keep your business open. It's just so frustrating and you want to say, I mean, you know, I'm not a uh a, the type of person who's quick to turn to law enforcement, far from it. But you know, I see people
1: I'll be like, w- w- where are the authorities? You know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I could have forgiven a, a maybe a slightly skeptical response, uh slightly, emphasis on slightly in the beginning, um, because I probably would have had the same thoughts in my head. But once it became clear, and once the magnitude of it became clear, uh, we had to—we should have gotten rid of any skepticism in the first week or two. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I'd like to, you know, wrapping up, I'd like to just give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about what's next for you. So you are still at Ohio University, at my university, we are colleagues. Yes. Um, and you're doing really interesting work. You you have a lot of different interests in public health, uh, but I know that informatics are something you spend a lot of time on. And you're also heading up this Ohio Alliance for Innovation and Population Health. So I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what 2021 looks like for Rick Hodges. What what are you hoping to work on, you know, moving
1: forward? Well, Dan, I'm I'm very interested in, in you know, and it's been just in the time that I've, um, since I was director of the Department of Health, we've had these huge health priorities. Uh, the first one was infant mortality. All of the hundreds of millions of dollars was focused in on that problem. Uh, quickly, it became opiates, and billions of dollars have been focused on the opiate problem, and now suddenly it's COVID, and in between, we've had a lot of little issues like, you know, I wouldn't call it little, but Ebola was a short-term issue, and and there are a lot of other uh, public health issues that come and go, and th- our whole system is so fragmented, and we tend to respond to each des- each problem as if it's something entirely new and different. I'm to work on uh, building health infrastructure throughout the state, but especially in Appalachia, so that no matter what the next d- disease of the month is, we don't have to change our systems, but we can just have our systems pivot and adapt to a new problem. So that means a lot more care coordination, paying for value, um, understanding outcomes, understanding where to make investments in population health problems. So that's... Um, that's what I'm trying to that's my strategic uh kind of interest in in being at the university but as far as you know what am I going to do in the future i hope i um, I hope I'm a bobcat till I'm a maritime or whatever if they give that to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'll make some phone calls.
1: Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I mean we're lucky to have you at OU, and I mean it's funny you just said these are some of the things you want to work on, but like you almost described the whole ball game there. Like if we could solve those problems, yes. the number of things that come with it are just incredible.
1: Yeah, it's it's a huge undertaking, but uh, you know I see people kind of gradually moving in that direction, and and hopefully we continue to do that.
0: Great. Well, Rick, thanks so much for talking with us, and uh, we'll stay in touch moving forward, for sure. Very good. Thank you, Dan. My many thanks to Rick Hodges for taking the time to reflect a little bit on the dynamics of Ohio's COVID-19 response and much more. You'll find some helpful links in our show notes at wcbe.org and prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by me and Mark France. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at at PrognosisOhio. As always, we encourage you to reach out via email or social media with your suggestions and your feedback. As I mentioned, we welcome ideas for important issues you'd like to hear us engage with on the show. And finally, we'd really appreciate your support through Patreon. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks, everybody. Be safe and be well.